listening to the a to d podcast i am Ni, your humble and gracious host today i've got a well, what i hope will be a very good episode lined up for you i'm actually going to speak with my dad about his life in ghana in the 30s 40s and 50s um his decision to come to the uk um, and his experiences as a young man in the uk in the 60s so without further ado i will now introduce you to my dad do you want to introduce yourself dad so my name is uh Oku Akwe Aloti. Traditionally, uh, my tribal name is Akwe. I got the name Oku because I was a twin. Can you tell us when you were born? Well, I was born on a Tuesday, the 16th of July, 1935. And where was this? I was born in Accra. So even back then, the city was known as Accra? Accra, yeah, it was. Mm-hmm. But the country wasn't yet Ghana, it was the Gold Coast, right? It was the Gold Coast, yeah. So let's get into what your family life was like. Um, how would you sort of describe your family's um, economic status? Well, I would uh, say an ordinary family. Not rich, not poor, but somewhere in between. How big was this family? Um, did you have many siblings? Who did you live with? Sort of like, yeah, how sizable was the, your family and what did that look like? Uh quite a sizable one because uh, by tradition we live in groups as a family uh, fathers uncles aunties cousins uh, uh, every every relationship and uh, you all live in the family house with the various uh, sections of it Okay, could you give us a breakdown of your family members, uh, uh, your your immediate family members? Yes, uh, my 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 uh, dad had a sizable family, yeah, uh, with my uncles, aunties, my grandmother's uh, relations as well. So. It was quite sizable. Okay, my dad was uh, a carpenter, and my mom was uh, a local trader. And uh, we lived with all the others of the family. Okay, um, there were eight of us in all. So altogether, eight siblings um, from the same two parents. Yeah, and I was the second. I had the senior brother by the name of Papu. And then myself, Akwe, and my twin brother, Ado. The other siblings were uh, Akutaywa and then Adukwe. But we lost some of them uh, when they were young. Uh, Adukwe, for instance. Adukwe, uh, sister. Uh, Kali is is still alive. Uh, Mocho, she died young. And then, yeah, I'll come to that one. We'll get to it. 
we lived together but uh, I was very much influenced by my uncle who was uh, a pharmacist in those days they called them dispensers and he was rather very much uh, involved in my upbringing because uh, I remember he he sent us to myself and my twin brother he sent us to uh, kindergarten the Roman Catholic school which was only about uh, 200 years from our house and what happened was um, he used to be transferred from uh, town to town in Ghana because of his job and he took us with him the first stop uh, the first place we went to was uh, called Akuse uh, there we were in class one from Akuse, we went to Keta. And by uh, the second year, that was when we were in class two. We lived in Keta and was transferred again to Enchi, which was a bit far from uh, the coast. Okay. Yeah. Uh, since we're talking about a time period where colonialism was rife throughout the continent, I want to kind of give some context to that colonialism. Um, so it didn't look identical in every single nation. So we kind of had different types of colonies. We had a settler colony like um, in South Africa and Kenya, where the um, colonizer, you know, they came, they set up shop, they lived there in large numbers and they controlled the country politically, economically, um, X, Y, Z. Um, we had um, worker colonies like uh, Angola or Mozambique, where the Portuguese essentially turned the population into a slave population. And then they were used to work in things like mines in, in southern countries. Um, and then we have um, cash crop colonies like Cote d'Ivoire, um, Nigeria and Ghana, where, um, again, the colonizers don't necessarily live there in, in large numbers, but they use the people and the economy and the resources to create products that benefit them and that fuel their economies. Um, things like palm oil and cocoa. So these raw materials are um, essential for the confectionery industry and the beauty industry, uh, but we don't get much of the uh, dividends from these industries. Um, and essentially farmers are forced to focus on uh, growing um, materials for export rather than being able to use the land for uh, farming or just something else that might be of use uh, to people that live on the ground. So... From your perspective, Dad, um, what was it like living on the ground in a in a colony in in the Gold Coast as it was? Um, was the presence of whites very obvious to you, or the the presence of non Ghanaians? Like, how obvious was that to you at the time? Yeah, uh, uh, I think uh, Accra was a multiracial place at the time. We had the English, the Portuguese, the Syrians, the Indians. And most of them were traders, like people like Glamour, Bombay Bazaar. We had USC, United African Company, CFAO, which is a French company, SCOA, also French. So it was a diversified uh, place to live in. Was it always obvious to you that you, as a Ghanaian, as a black man, were, um, were a second-class citizen? And 
was it always obvious that the the whites were in charge the english were controlling what went went on um in your own country even though there weren't necessarily a lot of them living in the country at the time yes uh, because uh, th- that uh, was a situation because let's say uh, places of work and all that were owned by them so where uh, they were doing things are they like and you can be sure that uh, they give preference to their lot as compared to um, the indigenous people in terms of Accra how um how diverse was Accra in terms of Ghanaians that lived there um you know obviously Accra is or well, a proper Accra is 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 guys is Gadambe in 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 um uh, that's that's the Gada- the Gadambe's um native land is in, in Accra but how populated was Accra in terms of other groups like were there a lot of Ashantis, Fanti people, Evwes, uh, Gurunsi people, Hausa people? Like how, how populated by different um, ethnic groups or tribes uh, was Accra at the time? Yeah, Accra was, well, being the capital, almost everybody wants to live in the capital because the main jobs and all that were in Accra. So everyone, uh, well, not everyone, most people, uh, Converge on Accra, so you had a, a real mixture of uh, various tribes. Was there um, a lot of obvious racial discrimination or segregation, or like an apartheid sort of situation in Accra, where you restricted from going to certain places because you weren't white? Uh, like, was that something that ever happened or that you ever saw? Yeah, to some extent, but uh, there were one. Uh, or two places which were restricted to uh, the foreigners. But you had uh, Africans working for them, mainly. Yeah, but uh, you, 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 you not treated, you treated differently from the foreigners. So there were situations where something was very obviously for whites only. It, it was, yeah, mostly, well, when you say whites, well, we we consider everybody who who is not an African as a foreigner, like the Indians, the Lebanese, the Syrians. Uh, we we refer to them as uh, Blafome, which means they are white people. So, how far did this extend? Um, what kind of things were restricted? Was it like um, only entertainment things, or did it you know extend to things like um, medical care? The Ridge Hospital was used mainly by the whites. You see, not not it wasn't a situation of only white people, but mostly white because, for example, uh, expenses and all that were a bit high, and they could afford it more than uh, the ordinary uh, African. So discrimination was more indirect than direct. Yeah, indirect. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I've kind of touched on Accra being the Gadambe's um, ancestral land. How did it feel having, you know, both foreign occupation in the form of colonial rule, but also to see other communities make Accra their home and sort of, and I don't want to go into like the the history of of, of inter-ethnic feuds in, in, in Ghana, but with the history of how the Portuguese and how the British infiltrated the coast, 
um, and the way that Ghana people might have been seen as um, aids or accessories to this colonial rule, foreign rule, whether that's you know factual or not in terms of whether people actually helped or resisted um, under under false pretenses or X Y Z. Is it, I don't want to go into that, but I want to go into like how did it feel for you as a Ghana man seeing you know people that maybe would have come with different expertise and been able to use those expertise to to well, essentially get ahead to you know build um a more fruitful econ- economy and things of that nature you know um because the guys are mostly you know known for things like fishing and trading um but you know then you would have had people coming from other parts of Ghana that were maybe more more versed in 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 different um areas things like um agriculture and mining you know things that we wouldn't historically have had much expertise in um but coming using those skills and those the technology and infrastructure to sort of to um you know to to plant themselves in a crowd how did it sort of feel was it like another layer of um oppression for you or did it feel just like you know something natural of where your you know your 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 um where your neighborhood is just becoming more diversified and you're getting more diverse neighbors um uh, in 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 uh, accra you have the feeling that the, the, the other people are doing better than you because they are not uh, indigenous the, the the foreigners who came in had a better life because mostly they were in business so they were in control of the finances uh, so they could get more or less what they want than the ordinary uh, african because they generate the uh, finances and so they use it as they like okay um could you give me an idea of what the curriculum was like for you when you were a child it, it was mostly british history that we were uh, put through because during those i knew more about britain than i knew about uh, the gold coast uh, everything was done in english your history the, the list they teach you about your uh, history it was uh, 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 not much but you uh, were really taught about what happened in Britain in those days and it was like that until independence you exams were taken in English about uh, 80% so I want to now sort of see if we can establish a through line between colonial practices in different areas so in Ghana for you or in the Gold Coast at the time for you was there this attempt to instill a sense of Britishness within you like did they attempt to make you feel British um did they call Britain the mother country like uh, in a similar style that was taken in the um in the West Indies for example did you feel like a british citizen did you feel connected to the uk no the, the the thing was your your education was all about uh, britain and uh, how the white man lived and that was one of the reasons why uh, most of us thought it would be a good thing to be in britain 
So you don't think there was that same sort of attempt to make Ghanaians feel British? No, not from the Gold Coast. So I think what the situation was, it was a bit different from the West Indies as compared to Ghana. Let's fast forward a little. So you finish your formal education, you're working, Ghana gains its independence in 1957. Uh, how old were you at that time? I think about 22 years. And when did you leave to come to the UK? Uh, in 1961. So not a great deal of time had passed. So I, I want to kind of get into your, your reasons behind leaving. But first, I really want to get into what was the feeling at the time of gaining independence? Like, what was the feeling towards Nkrumah's new regime, uh, the birth of an, a new nation, of taking on this new name, Ghana? Like, what was the feeling on the ground from young people, from well, from Ghana in general? Like, how did people react? No, it was uh, quite exciting during those days because I know uh, as youngsters, we, we were members of the CPP Youth League. The CPP was the Convention People's Party, which... Uh, Krumah was the leader and uh, got independence. Uh, as far as we understood it, everything will then be done by uh, uh, the Ghanaians. They do things their own way. Uh, there will be no discriminations like you can go here, you can't go there. Because if I remember, there were certain areas like we call the bungalows which were residential uh, areas for uh, 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 the expatriates. Those places, for example, you can't live. You can work there, but you can't live there. And uh, all those will be in the past. You live wherever you want, uh, do whatever you want. That was the understanding. Free, you live freely like uh, you see the foreigners live. Did you have an understanding of where the name Ghana came from? And what did that new national identity mean for people at the time? Was it unifying? What did it do for the people? Yeah, they, they got that name because uh, uh, according to the history, there were some empires like the Mele Empire, the Songhe Empire, the Ghana Empire, and they were doing quite well as uh, uh, countries. And the, the idea was uh, that being the case, it would be a good thing to, 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 to use that name, which will give people the, the feeling of well-being, being able to do something uh, significant for themselves. How quickly did things change? Did it feel like the whites were here one day and gone the next? Or did it take a bit of more of a, a slower approach to, to shift into full Ghanaian rule? Like, how did how did that transition sort of happen? I think it, it came slowly uh, because, well, did, everything didn't change overnight. You know, uh, we still had this uh, idea that uh, the British way or the, the English British way of living was better, and that gave us the impetus to want to live in Britain and live like they were living. That's interesting. So, so for you, then, when was the when was the exact moment that you knew you were coming to England? When did you make that decision? Look, that that was even when I was the in the elementary school because uh, boys, you had all these. Uh, 
well, the, the main thing was uh, all you were being taught about was Britain, how things were there and all that. So it wouldn't be a bad place at all to be in if you can live the way they live if you can, in Ghana. So the idea was, so oh, if, if you can get to Britain, uh, you, 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 you learn to live the way they live. And then when you go back to Ghana, you'll be living like they were living there. So which is, will be an improvement on your way of life. And that was the main, 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 main reason. I remember when we were in the elementary school, the school was not far from the beach. And we used to go for physical uh, education and all that, just outside the school. And from there, you can see the sea with ships and all that. I remember us thinking with some of my friends, you point at the ship and say, this is the ship in which I'm going to Britain, which was something which was really preparing you to be ready to move and live in Britain and come back and live like uh, the, 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 the British were living in your country. So from that time, the idea was, I must go and live in Britain. So this is something we've spoken about over the years, but if you wouldn't mind clarifying for the for the listeners your sort of situation at the time. So you were the physio for the Accra Hearts of Oak football team? Yes. And your dad was also the manager of the second team? He was the manager of the second team, uh, uh, Dwarfs. He was a member of the executive and you left Ghana while you were working for a Crow Hearts of Oak. Yeah, I, I, that wasn't a, a, a permanent job. That was part-time. But it was one of the things you were doing, no? Well, yeah, uh, because I was the first, and, and, and they, they didn't call them physiotherapists that time. They called them first aid man. And I got into that by uh, chance. And, and how it happened was once we traveled, I used to look after the uh, catering for the team. So I traveled with them everywhere they went. And this time, the chap who was the first aid man didn't turn up. Yes. And uh, previous to that, in the school, I've, I've been an athlete, a footballer. I ran the four, 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 40 yards. I was a goalkeeper. So my, I, 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 I was interested in sports in general. And on this day, the, the, the first man didn't turn up. And the players, some of them were complaining about not being massaged, this and that. And uh, the, some of the young ones, which w- were my age group, uh, like uh, Ajiri Finn, uh, Adodameti, uh, Ofedodu, they were complaining. And being an athlete, what we used to do is after training, we uh, we learn to massage ourselves. You know, you do me, you do for me, I do for you, just to keep going. So with that knowledge, and when they were complaining, I called one of the nearest who lived about 200 yards from us, uh, Ajirifin. And I told him, look, I can massage you but I don't want anyone else to know about that. I'll do it for you only. So we went to another room because we were in a school. At, this was at uh, Obuasi. 
and uh, we went to another section, uh, another classroom. We put the mat down, and I massaged him, with the understanding that it was only for him. But shortly after that, Ofeodu came to me and said they used to call me Mr. Loti. He said, Mr. Loti, I understand you can massage. So will you do it for me? <laughs> so I did and told him that look, this is only between us, and I don't want it to go any further. I did for him, and who turns up next? I do damity. <laughs> and I did for him. He went and told the team manager, Oduruata, that look, Mr. Alote is no more going to look after the catering. He is going to be the first aid man. That's how I became the first aid man for Accra Hearts of Hope. From that day, they gave me that job. And what happened was sometimes when they were going, for example, from Accra to Obasi was quite a, a journey. And I, I wasn't keen on going. One time I remember after work, because we travel on Saturdays after work, uh, we finished work at 12 o'clock. So I delayed. I didn't go home, hoping that by the time I get back, they will be gone. I turned around, and there was the truck waiting for me. <laughs> so whether I wanted it or not, I had to go. And that, that took off. You know, so I, I was doing that all the time uh, until I left. I was the first aid man. Okay, can we go over the logistics of how you actually came to the UK? That was another uh, story. What? Okay, uh, from uh, day one when uh, we were talking about going to Europe and all that. Fortunately for me, one of my best friends, a classmate, he was friendly with the. Uh, one boxer, Tukwikloti, who came over here and did very well. And through him, he got the opportunity to come. So he left and came here. He was writing to me, you know, telling me about how things were going. And because we've all been talking about going to live in Britain. So through him, uh, I had the contacts, you know, whatever uh, arrangements he could make from here for me was okay. So we kept in correspondence regularly. He was telling me about what life was like here and all that. So I did make it a point to save and be able to travel. So every penny I got, I saved. And uh, there was this situation when uh, then the immigration rules were not strict. All you needed was a passport, a genuine passport, and then you can come here without a visa. But suddenly in the papers there was um, a story that they said the t title of uh, the article in the paper was Immigrants to UK Will Find It Tough. And I couldn't wait for things to change before coming. So I had to uh, prepare myself very quickly to leave and be here free before they start asking for visas and all that. So I saved every penny I've got. I was trying to make a booking with Elder Dempsey Lines, which was one of the main flying uh, ships companies, shipping companies to 
come over here. So this is this is this is boats. So you boats. Yeah, I couldn't I couldn't get uh, on any of Elder Dempster line boats because it they were fully booked. And the friend told me that oh you could go, you can get it on a French boat from uh, Togo. So, I had to look into that as well. And a friend of my brother, who was, uh, his name was Andrew Marty, he was a boxer. He'd been in to, uh, to Europe before, but he was back then in Ghana, the Gold Coast, yeah. And uh, my elder brother spoke to him, and he said, oh, I can tell him about how to get to Britain through the French uh, shipping company. And so he decided to take me to um, Lomé to do a booking for a boat. So we went. And fortunately for me, there was a, sh a ship by the name of General Leclerc going to France. And the idea was if I get to France, I will uh, come by land to Britain. So luckily I got a booking which was in uh, February 61, yeah. So, even on the day I had to leave, I was still at work, I hadn't resigned yet. I went and spoke to my uh, immediate uh, officer, and he decided to overlook the fact that I wouldn't serve all the... Uh, um, the period of leave. So the very day I was leaving, I was supposed to be working. So I went to work, was there for about an hour or two, and left for the Aclara Lorry Park, where I took a bus to Lomé. And I was over there a weekend, where we went on a Saturday, no, a Friday or so. So I was there over the weekend and left Lome on the Monday. And then from Togo you went on, so how long did the journey take after you got to Togo? Oh, from Togo, the, the, the ship was uh, running down coast, you know, they were loading from uh, port to port, you see, and we live in Abidjan for, uh, we left uh, Lome and then went through Abidjan, which was uh, Côte d'Ivoire. And uh, we left, I think it took roughly two weeks because they were stopping from port to port loading and all that. And so I came to, uh, got to France. Uh, Bordeaux was the last port for the ship. From there I took a train to Paris, then to Paris, another train, Calais, and then London. So I arrived here in March 1961. So once you got here, what were some of your first experiences and how did you sort of acclimatize to being in this new country? Oh, by the, that time, I had been in touch with my friend because uh, he knew I was arriving. He uh, had uh, arranged with his landlord so I could stay with him 
and funny place. The landlord he owned more than one house, an Indian. So he, he, he agreed that I should come to him and through that I will get a place through his landlord. So I came to, I, on the day of my arrival, he wasn't at the uh, uh, train station to meet me, but he, was, he should be going to school. So I had the address of the house and I took a taxi and when that was in Battersea and uh, he was there and, and uh, I felt very good after seeing him you know but it was cold during that time he leaves me in the house goes to school oh, oh. by the time he comes back I'll still be in bed <laughs> because it was cold and uh, you feel uh, comfortable in bed all the time he also helped me to get a job you know he, he spoke to a friend of his who was working at a place in uh, Hampton, uh, a company called Hall and Hall, the uh, uh, rubber molders. I got a job there for a time. But traveling from uh, uh, Balham to Hall and Hall was a bit of a journey. So, most of the, uh, uh, during those days, most of the Ghanaian uh, boys worked as porters at the Grosvenor House Hotel because Kwame Nkrumah was supposed to have done that kind of job there before. So it was something uh, like uh, the Ghanaians to boast with how one of our leaders was a porter here before. And when you go there and you're from Ghana, they sort of, uh, that that's an advantage. So I left Hall and Hall and went to Grosvenor House Hotel as a porter. So I think we've set things up pretty nicely, but now I want to sort of get into your experiences of racism when you first arrived in the UK. Oh, well, then uh, during those days, uh, well, you can go to a place, they advertise for rooms to let and all that. There's no indication of racism in it. But when you go and knock on the door, they open the door and see your office. Oh, it's gone. The room is gone. You don't get it. It was happening so much that even one, um, if I remember, there was a story. One of these um, uh, people, I've forgotten his name. He used to be on telly. What he did was he took, what, there was one advert for a room to let and to prove that uh, that kind of racism was going on he took two people one white one black and the black was asked to first to go and ask for the room he went when they opened the door and saw his face and said oh the room is gone and then they sent the white man to go and ask for the same room. When he got there, they gave him the room, the room which was supposed to have gone. See, so these are the sort of things we were living with at the time. So I'll tell you a story. I don't know if I've told you before. It's That's the worst uh, 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 racism I've su uh, suffered since I came over here. I was then living at on uh, Childbert Road in Balam. I was going from work uh, home. When just turning, before I turn into my road, 
there was this lady pushing a pram coming towards me oh, it's nothing to do with me because I have no business with her so I was just passing and when she got to me turned round spat on me and say you black dog I couldn't believe it I didn't know her from Adam I couldn't say a word so I just uh, carried on and, and went home that's the worst uh, racism I've suffered okay I indirectly sometimes they do it not clearly but this one called me a black dog and spat on me I've done nothing to her I didn't know her from anywhere that's crazy and um, in, my, in my first episode I described some of the instances where I've been with you and we've been on the receiving end of those kind of racial abuses so it is crazy that like <laughs> you were you were experiencing it in the 60s and you know in the early 2000s we were still experiencing the same thing uh and and i was your i was your son with you experiencing it so that's that's crazy if we maybe switch gears a little bit um when you got here did you meet many west indians and what was that experience like meeting new types of black people well as for the experiences there are so many things uh, for example, the first time uh, I was friendly with some uh, West Indians was when I went to work uh, at uh, Hall and Hall, the uh, rubber factory. There were West Indians working there. Uh, and through them, we organized a trip to Germany, a weekend trip, because one of them was a driver. He had a car and uh, we had to pay him and he knew some uh, West Indians in, in the army who were then stationed in Germany so we drove in the car all the way to Germany Cologne we went to and well I well, didn't know anyone in Germany at the time so it was well like a weekend trip so we went and that was the first time I went to Germany from here but later on, I went back in 1966. I remember because uh, when England were playing Germany in the World Cup, and I was in Germany at the time. But through uh, after we came back, uh, I, I liked the things I saw there, you know. So it, it occurred to me, well, I, I, this wouldn't be a bad place to live in. Uh, it's a matter of trial and error so what happened was uh, some time later I decided I would want to go there at the time they'd been in the UK for about 20 years and the country had made it very clearly obvious they didn't want them here um, I remember reading things like when a crime was committed and it involved any West Indians, they would make sure that those faces were on the television, even if the crime included other people of different ethnic backgrounds. So where there was this programming to sort of make West Indians in particular look very violent, obviously black people in general, but uh, them in particular because they were the longest standing community here. How did that sort of programming or even just your... Um, personal interactions with with West Indians how did that affect who you chose to um, hang around with and also I guess maybe I don't know how much you could speak to it but um, how 
black community sort of came about in the wake of of that of the of these initial meet of of these meetings because this is going to be the first time where people like you're living side by side with these people because other usually you're across the world from each other but this is the first time you're in the same space well uh the the, the main thing is everything didn't run, run uh smoothly with them we had problems for example a uh, uh, west indian thinking is better than an african uh, so there were those tensions as well but then well this uh actions of uh, what do you call it danger being dangerous and all that because uh, you hear stories about West Indians getting involved with knife attacks this and that but some of our experiences were also the West Indian things is better than the African see and we had differences with some of them some were okay with us and uh, you look upon some of them as being very dangerous because they are the slightest provocation that we violent. That's quite interesting to hear. But despite that, you still became friends with, with some. Right? Yeah, yeah. I think I remember you telling me about two in particular. Yeah, they were Jamaicans. Okay. Jamaicans and... Uh, Is this a long-standing friendship? Well, I haven't seen them for ages now since I left... Uh, uh, hall and hall. Can you give an idea of what your trip to Germany was like and why you went? Well, they, 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 I, uh, I went on the trip because it was an experience, especially visiting another country. You know, going right through Belgium, Netherlands, and then into Aachen, which is in Germany. It's, it's, it's all something new, you know, seeing new places and all that. And that was an opportunity to go with them and, and it was cheaper too than by going yourself so uh, how did the trips sort of come to be and how did uh, how did you get there oh we we, we went uh, in the one in, in a car belonging to one of them yeah so we have to go on on the uh, ferry and they they he drove the rest of the way, way. Uh, the advantage was that he knew uh, these West Indians who were in the British Army and were stationed there. So we went and visited them. They at least they took us to one or two places so you can see what life was like there. So when you went on this trip, were you the only African out of the group? I was the only Ghanaian with them. Okay, but there were other Africans? No, they 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 were West Indians. So there so there were three of you altogether. Uh, one, two, three. And Mickey, one was Mickey. Then Mickey was the owner of the car. He did the driving. His uncle. Yeah, there were about four of us. Okay, four of you, and you were the only African in the group. Yeah, I was the and only. And when you got there, the the people that you stayed with were the West Indian people in the army, right? Yeah. So. So how how big was the group altogether when you got to Germany? No, uh, the, 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 when we got there, I think the the the, the people they knew, we saw uh, who arranged for us around for roughly we were there for is it two days? We went on a Friday. 
and we were there on the Saturday, Sunday, and Monday we came back. See, uh, it wasn't a big group as such. Just like, let's say, two women, two of them in the army, and four of us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so a total of six. Six, okay, cool. Um, so yeah, how was that experience? Was it um, was it fun? Was it? I mean, and and can you speak to also being the only African in that group? Did you feel left out at all or anything like that? Oh no, no. Well, there there wasn't much time to 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 have that feeling. See, we were look, seeing places. Here is this. Here is that. So you didn't get the opportunity to. So it was just like a sort of like a fun, positive. Fun, thing. yes, something like that. That's cool, that's cool. Um. So in terms of. Okay, so if we go back to living in the UK now, in terms of that, you know, that experience of new black ethnic identities, did you attempt to integrate with other people more or when did you like sort of find a group of Ghanaians that you could sort of attach yourself to quite quickly or how was it in terms of nav navigating, finding black people that were just like you or was it more a thing of where you just found people that were black and then you wanted to stick with them or was it you were more inclined to look for Africans or look for Ghanaians or what, what, what was that sort of like? I think uh, it was the situation was that you rather be with the uh, Ghanaians you know because you know most of their ways what you do what you don't do and all that so you don't feel a stranger that was the attitude and in terms of finding that situation was it very quick for you because obviously you said you lived with your friend who was from Ghana um, how long did you live to get with him before? oh not too long uh, because he had already arranged uh, for me to get a room mm -hmm. see so I think I was in his place for a week or so and then after that week I got a place in Balam in the house of uh, Rashid the owner of uh, where he was in the okay, so yeah. in Balam was there a big Ghanaian community or was it mostly West Indian? Oh yes, in, in Ghana, in, in, in Balam there were quite a few Ghanaians uh, yeah, because Fenley Road for example was new uh, boxer I've got his photograph somewhere Lovaloti and uh, then you have Kimpo and some others you know in, so in Balam there were a few Ghanaians already and it was easy to get around with them okay um okay so just to quickly sort of round up this um conversation about that because I want to focus on the period so when did you go back to Ghana again um when from from when you came here in the in 61 to when did you go back again? 10 10 years after so in that 10 years did you personally see a lot of integration between Africans and West Indians or was it more a thing of where you saw the community sort of solidify within themselves a lot more and become a, a sort of distant? Yeah, it was uh, a situation like that. Uh, what you do is you tend to stick with people you know. And uh, the, the, the West Indians, for example, have got re this reputation of being violent. So you want to keep away from that. And also, the, uh, some reputation of the Nigerians was that they were frosters and you don't want to be involved in that. So you keep away uh, and stick with the lot, you know. And that was the end of our conversation. Um, I hope everyone enjoyed listening to it. Um, I always thought that my dad was a very gifted orator. 
so I enjoyed having the conversation with him. Uh, I had planned to make this a two-part conversation, um, but very unfortunately, my dad is one of the many people that lost his life uh, to COVID-19. I was devastated at the time. He actually, he went to the hospital for something else and contracted COVID-19 on the ward. Um, and after about 10 days, um, he couldn't fight off the virus. And yeah, I was I was rocked. Um, the whole thing kind of made me even rethink releasing my podcasts. But um, I wanted to do this to honour him. I uh, wanted people to be able to hear his story. Um, I wanted to, you know, have, make something that expressed my uh, my continuing love for him. And I wanted to make something that my children could listen to and they'll know the story of how a young man from Ghana came to the UK and made a life for himself. Thank you, Dad, for everything. I'll always cherish the memories you have together. And this conversation is, uh, you know, it was one, it was a drop in the ocean compared to the things that we spoke about. So I'm happy uh, I'm happy that this, at least with this last one, I, I was able to record it and, and capture it. But to the listeners, um, thank you for listening. Really appreciate it. Um, and once again, if, if anyone has a story they would like to tell on this platform, let me know. My Twitter is tweeted at N-I-I-T-W-E-E-T-E-D. This is the A to E and I'm signing off.